We'd like to take a moment to recognize some of the Patreon listeners who help support what we do. Carissa B. from Renton, Washington, Chelsea D. from Anchorage, Alaska, Nadine from Hillsboro, Oregon, Susan S. from Taylor Mill, Kentucky, Asia A. from Ratchdale, Great Britain, Michelle S. from Lake Oswego, hometown holla, Amber W. from Eden Mills, Ontario, Canada. Thank you so much for your support. You guys get us through the days where we read bad reviews, sweat our balls off in the studio, or keep mispronouncing words 35 times. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. All right, Emily, let's get going with your story. Oh, I don't have a story. I thought it was your week. Um, absolutely not. I thought it was your week. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? I have one. <gasps> Josh? That's right, Murder in the Rain listeners. Our own Josh McCullough, producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, will be telling a story of Pacific Northwest true crime. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. It's me, Josh. This episode was inspired by a conversation about movies with our friend Shelly, who happens to be Alicia's mom. So thank you, Shelly. You're the best. During our conversation, she recommended a movie called How to Beat the High Cost of Living from 1980 which stars Jane Curtin, Jessica Lange, and Susan St. James. The plot concerns three financially struggling suburbanites who decide to rob their local mall's big cash giveaway money orb. It's currently streaming on Hulu, and it is not very good, but it was filmed <laughs> at the Valley River Center in Eugene, Oregon, and it features a heist via a vacuum, which is notable in some some sort of way. I've never seen that in a heist movie before. So Wait, like they use the vacuum to, to suck out the money or something? Yeah, it's like a gigantic clear orb Sounds and then like they home alone. and then <laughs> during like the big thing at the end whatever pageant or whatever they i think they drill through the bottom and give it the old hoover suck. <laughs> that's great <laughs> industrious so i googled the location to see if there were any cases uh, related to the mall that i could cover for the show and there weren't any but my search did lead me to the valley river inn which is where this story begins <laughs> From the Salem Statesman Journal, July 9th, 1984. Headline, Eugene Death Probed. Quote, A Lake Oswego woman found dead in her hotel room here had been assaulted, police said Sunday. Eugene Police Lieutenant Jen Clements said investigators were not ready to disclose the cause of 26-year-old Catherine Ann Martini Lissy's death, but said the case was being investigated as a homicide. He said an autopsy had been performed on the body, found Friday in her room at the Valley River Inn. Police have no suspects, Clements said. Alan Lonstrom, Valley River Inn manager, said a maid discovered Martini Lissy's body at about 3.30 p.m. Friday when she entered to clean the room. Carol Barkley, a Portland friend of Martini Lissy, said the woman worked as a commercial loan officer for a Portland bank and was in Eugene on business, unquote. Molly Griggs, 17, was overcome with emotion as she read that article. Through tears, she explained to her boyfriend that a few months earlier, she had met a man in downtown Portland and he had asked for help sourcing a hitman to kill a woman. After regaining her composure, Molly contacted the Eugene Police Department, where she was connected with Detective Lloyd Davis and began recounting her story. Molly frequented an area of downtown Portland known for dope spots and sex work. 
Through that work, she'd met a man who had paid her to make a series of threatening phone calls to an unknown woman. This is in June, one month before the murder. During their encounters, he also mentioned that he wanted to have a woman killed. He didn't say who, only that she was young, that it had to happen soon, and that he would pay the killer $5,000. Sergeant Michael Klein and Detective David Poppy, working the case alongside Detective Davis, determined that Catherine Martini Lissy was married to one Michael David Lissy. Klein called the man and could hear the emotion in Mr. Lissy's voice as the sergeant informed him of the discovery of the body that was nearly certain to be Catherine's. Michael Lissy drove south from Lake Oswego, a wealthy suburb of Portland, to the Eugene Police Department, arriving with photographs of Catherine for identification purposes. Looking over the photos, Detective Davis said, quote, There's no doubt about it, Mr. Lissy. Your wife is the deceased person we found in the hotel. I'm very sorry. Shocked, Michael put a hand to his face and began to cry. Davis asked Michael why Catherine had been in Eugene, and he replied that she was staying there on business for one night and returning the following day. He also stated that the couple hadn't had any contact since Catherine left a message on their home's answering machine around noon the day she checked in. Michael was caught off guard when the detective asked for his alibi on the day Catherine was killed. He replied that he was at one of the two Valley windsurfing and scuba shops he owned in Portland until 6.30 that night, and after that he had drinks and apps with one of his employees at a nearby tavern. He then stopped at a friend's house for a quick visit, made it home, and was in bed before 10, and then slept until half past 9 the next morning. Regarding evidence found in the hotel room, Davis asked Michael if Catherine was involved with any type of narcotics. Michael admitted that she did use both cocaine and MDA, but only occasionally, and that she sometimes bought her drugs from the employees of the two scuba shops he owned. He stated that she also had a drug connection in Eugene, and wondered aloud if that may have had something to do with her murder. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting. Davis also asked if Catherine had any male friends she might have planned to visit in Eugene. Lissy responded that they had an open relationship. She had boyfriends, and he had girlfriends. At the conclusion of their conversation, Detective Davis thanked Lissy for speaking with him and said they would be in touch the next morning, as soon as the autopsy report became available. Do you get a sense of what that conversation was like? Were they suspicious of him? I think that they that their their sensors were going off. Yeah, because I feel like mine would be too, just like how forthcoming he w- is with certain details. Exactly, And yeah. also that's a very convenient alibi. Yeah. Like, I was in bed by 10 after seeing friends and being out in public. And I slept till half past nine when my alarm was preset. <laughs> Catherine Ann Martini was born in New York in April of 1958. She was an award-winning student schooled at the Mary Lewis Academy in Queens. In eighth grade, her fellow students voted her best all-around girl. Catherine graduated high school with academic honors and was a gifted swimmer and diver. After receiving several scholarship offers, she decided to attend Yale, where she studied economics and in 1978 was an all-league diver. According to a letter of recommendation written by Jane Jervis, the dean of Hamilton College, quote, Catherine participated in the Big Sister program, was captain of the co-ed touch football team, and was wonderfully successful as a student counselor. Following her graduation from Yale, she was hired by First National Bank of Boston, which had an office in Portland. There, she became a loan officer, specializing in transactions in excess of $500,000, one of their first female employees to do so. Catherine Martini Lissy was young, beloved, successful, and now laid out on a dissection table. Her body was brought in as it had been at the hotel, wearing two rings, a wristwatch, a brassiere, and a dark blouse. 
Performing the autopsy was Dr. Edward F. Wilson, who at that point had been the Lane County Medical Examiner for 14 years. The state of Catherine's stomach contents revealed a time of death as early as 8.30 or 9.30 the previous evening, July 5th, a time frame that was confirmed with the hotel staff member who served Catherine her final meal. Examining the head, Dr. Wilson noted swelling around the face, two small abrasions near the right side of the mouth, a patch of scalp and hair torn from the left side of the head, a Y-shaped abrasion two inches behind the left earlobe, and beneath that abrasion, a large bruise. There was a minor abrasion in the vagina and two more small abrasions on the right hip, which could have been the result of an attempted rape, but the evidence was indeterminate. There was evidence of petechial hemorrhaging in the eyes, and this along with the Y-shaped abrasion led the examiner to rule the cause of death as asphyxiation due to strangulation, most likely by a ligature. Investigators found no evidence of a break-in to room 305 at the Valley River Inn, as the housekeeper who discovered the body had had to unlock the door to enter, the sliding glass door that led to the room's balcony was locked, and the guests in the adjoining rooms reported hearing no disturbances on the night of the murder. Detectives began to think that Catherine may have known her killer. But that makes sense, because she would have been more likely to let them in, not be suspicious. They attack her, take the key lock the door behind them so that she's harder to find. Yep. I initially thought it would be that or a uh, staff member maybe. Yeah. Something oh like that. yeah, someone, someone who, who has just... access. Or posing, yeah. posing as staff to be like, excuse us, Miss So-and-so. The bed in room 305 was fitted with yellow sheets, a red patterned bedspread, and a wicker headboard. Catherine's body was found laying face down across the mattress, perpendicular rather than head to toe. The television had been left on, as had the lights. A woman's purse found in the room contained no wallet, no credit cards, and no money. There were clothes hung in the closet and a small overnight bag on the floor. A tuft of hair lay near her body, and there was a small amount of coagulated blood around the nose, mouth, and sides of her face. The hands, one sporting a wedding ring, were clasped together against the chest. An ashtray and a book of matches lay on the bed as well. An open but unused tampon lay on the floor near the nightstand, and this tampon was the piece of evidence which made detectives think narcotics may have played a part in Catherine's death. And this is because tampons are sometimes used by drug mules as vagina corks or butthole corks. Fun fact. Sadly, it was a tantalizing lead that ultimately went nowhere. Detectives Davis and Klein met Michael Lissy at he and Catherine's Lake Oswego condominium the next day. When they moved into the den to speak privately, Michael's first question was whether or not his wife's death had been a murder. Davis replied that yes, she had been murdered, then continued by asking his own questions. Did Catherine have any enemies? How long had they known each other, and how often did she travel to Eugene? I know the murder question that's used a lot, you know, in true crime stuff. They're like, and the first thing he said. But truly, that is such an alarming thing. I can't imagine that if officers showed up at my house or something and informed me that someone I cared about was dead... I find it really hard that, to think that my brain would be like, they were murdered. I would assume it, it's more about the phrasing. Like, wouldn't you ask what happened yeah, to I'd them? Yeah, I'd be like, oh my God, what do you mean what happened? Like, right. Was it a car accident? So were they murdered? It's like they... the phrasing would make you question, Yeah, and why someone, did you ask that? And even though it's all we talk about, the odds of someone being murdered are so low. And... And it's so uncommon that that really shouldn't be your first thing. So, right. Most likely it would be a car accident yeah. or, you know, just an accident in general. So it is like as much as that's not a big deal, it's kind of like, mm, that's weird. Yeah. I think, yeah, if somebody asked it that way, that would throw me off. Yeah. Detective Davis asked if Michael used cocaine. 
He replied sometimes, but that Kathy was a more frequent user. When asked, he also claimed there was no cocaine in the house. Detective Davis rephrased. What he wanted was a piece of paper fold to process for prints, hoping to find a link between those drugs and this murder. And a uh, paper fold is just a little paper drug bindle. Michael responded that there was no paper fold in the house and that the location of Kathy's coke file, her booger sugar tote of choice, was unknown to him. Davis moved on, asking about the last time the couple had had sex. It was on July 4th, the day before she left. Three or four times, in fact. Lucky. I think about, you know, probably a total of four minutes of sex. <laughs> Davis asked if there were any stressors on the marriage relating to their mutually open relationship. Michael admitted that two weeks ago he and Catherine had contracted a sexually transmitted infection, and they weren't sure of the source, whether it was one of Michael's outbreak monkeys or one of Catherine's. <laughs> Satisfied for the time being, Klein and Davis concluded the interview and returned to Eugene. By that time and unknown to them, Catherine's body had already been released to a mortuary and cremated. Besides selling the accompanying equipment at his shops, Michael Lissy also instructed clients for diving certifications. This is how Michael and Catherine met in May of 1983. The day she entered Michael's shop looking to take lessons, Catherine was three days single after a breakup with a fellow banker. She and Michael hit it off immediately. They were both charming and intelligent. She had a swanky job at the bank. He was a business owner in preparation to head a dive for the National Geographic Society, and they were both Ivy League graduates. She from Yale, he from Harvard. Quite the power couple. Do you remember Molly Griggs? She was the sex worker who contacted police after reading a newspaper article regarding Catherine's murder. Well, she had a lot to tell Detective Davis, stating that, beginning in March of 1984, a few months before the murder, Molly had met and frequently had sex for money with a man who had voiced a couple of special requests. He had paid Molly $100 each for three threatening phone calls she then made to an unknown woman. He also wanted to have a bunch of people killed. He said he would pay her $1,000 to source a hitman to beat a man within an inch of his life, to kill an old couple on the Oregon coast and make it look like an accident, and to have a young woman strangled and possibly raped. But unfortunately, Molly was not given any of their names. She asked when the killings would occur, and the man responded, soon. What she'd read in the article confirmed he was involved. The details matched too closely. The strangulation, Catherine's age, the drugs, rape as a possible motive, everything matched. Detective Davis asked if Molly knew the man's name. She said, yes, it's Michael Lissy. There was something about Michael Lissy that rubbed Detective Davis the wrong way. It was there from their first interaction. Lissy had had an answer for everything, and he'd so casually tossed out extremely personal details about his relationship with Catherine. And when asked about extramarital affairs, Lissy answered in the affirmative almost instantly. He had also bypassed any questions regarding the cremation by citing funerals and burials as barbaric a view he claimed Catherine had shared with him. Lissy had also requested a copy of the autopsy report before he would discuss the examiner's findings with police. And he'd been the one to float the idea that the murder could have been a drug deal gone bad. Ivy League education at work. <laughs> right. So superior. <laughs> Previous to Molly calling the Eugene police, detectives had very little to go on. They were looking into the possible drug angle and nothing else. Everything Molly told them seemed legit, but her statement wouldn't be enough. They needed something definitive, so Molly agreed to wear a wire. Detectives Davis and Poppy had Molly checked into the Portland Motor Hotel to keep her safe while the investigations continued. From there, Molly made several phone calls to Michael. The plan was for him and Molly to meet up so he could make some incriminating statements into a body wire. 
He at first refused to meet her in person, then said he would meet Molly at Portland's Galleria downtown, which is no longer there, and this is a meeting he didn't show up for, though Molly did see him drive by in his sweet Datsun 300Z. Later that same day, Molly finally convinced him to meet up when she said, regarding the newspaper article, quote, This sounded just like the plot you described to me when you wanted to have someone killed. I am worried that I am involved and want you to help me get away because the police will be contacting me. I need some money to get out of town. End quote. The meeting was set for 9.30 p.m. at a nearby Denny's. With a surveillance team in place nearby, Molly arrived in a taxi, five minutes early, and as she headed for the front door, someone called her name. It was Michael Lissy, and he was sitting a few yards away in an area somewhat obscured by bushes. He didn't want to go inside. He wanted to go for a drive. Molly refused his many attempts to get her in his van. Yes, he had switched out his Datsun for a creeper van, and he finally agreed to sit down for coffee and a chat. Inside the diner, Molly began talking about the details of the murder she had read in the paper. Michael said that he thought his phone was being tapped, hence his reluctance to talk. And he had no way of knowing this, but he was actually correct. Molly then flat out said, I think you had your wife killed. In response, he said, quote, I'm really fucking upset about it. She was strangled and raped. Molly replied that that was supposed to happen to the woman he wanted killed. Michael did not respond to that. Molly asked for the money to get out of town, but Michael said he didn't have it on him, and they'd have to drive to an ATM. She again refused to get in his van, and instead waited outside the Denny's as he made the bank run. He returned within a few minutes, handed her a wad of money, and she then hopped into a taxi she had waiting. The taxi dropped Molly off at the downtown Hilton, where she was escorted through the hotel, exiting on the next block over, and was then driven back to her safe house at the Portland Motor Hotel by a detective. And this was all in an effort to shake Lissy in case he'd been following her. Mm. Once inside the room, the money was examined. $300 in 50s, which was very interesting, because at the time, ATMs in Portland only dispensed fives and twenties. Oh, so he would have had to got the money somewhere else. He had it on him the whole time, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah he was prepared. It makes you wonder why he'd want her to get into the van so badly. Mm-hmm. During the detective's probe into Michael Lissy's background, they found a treasure trove of extremely interesting tidbits about the man. For example, in the 70s, as manager of a Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise, he was ultimately fired for embezzlement. But before that, oh boy. His standard practice was to hunt and scrap to find the lowest quality, cheapest chickens for battering and serving to folks. He staged multiple fake robberies, took money from the safe, scammed the till with reckless abandon, and did it all so well his boss had to answer for it to corporate. I love a chicken scam. And like, so how was he benefiting from this, though? He was pocketing the money? Yeah, basically whenever he, he found an opportunity to take cash, he would do it. Undersell okay. the chicken. So it's like you get $500 for chickens, but if you can find it for $200, right. you get the right. $300. He pockets the difference. It's yeah. some real Gen Shaw action. <laughs> Additionally, he really loved insurance fraud and had multiple open claims under investigation. He offered his female employees higher wages in exchange for sex, and the ones he wasn't using for sex, he paid a miserly $4 an hour. He was trying to buy a sailboat so he could smuggle drugs with it. The list goes on. I love, too, the idea of, like, the fake robberies. I bet that used to happen a lot. Yeah. Before security cameras and stuff. Like, man, we're missing 500 bucks from the till. We got robbed last night. Absolutely. I could from my that. cheap chicken. Three weeks after Catherine's murder, July 24th, police spoke with Michael's third wife, Margot Stark, 27 years old. They had divorced in December of 1983, with Michael then marrying Catherine the very next month. She was the bookkeeper for Michael's scuba shops, and also someone Michael used frequently for sex. In a statement to police, she claimed that for the previous two months, he had asked her to cook the books, 
to under-record his sales by $2,000. Michael had not told her the reason, but she believed he was pulling one of his old chicken scams. <laughs> Margot reported that Michael often did not record his sales at all and would pocket the cash from them. He would also take money from the till before Margot could do the accounting, making an accurate financial picture impossible to create, though by her educated guess, Michael was at least $100,000 in debt. Margot also connected the dots relating to another witness statement, relaying that she had received three anonymous threatening phone calls back in June. Oh. Hearing this, detectives put together that these were the calls Molly Griggs had been paid by Lissy to make. Wait, so the, the phone calls that he paid for was not the same person he wanted to kill? Correct. Uh, so the whole time I was thinking it was to the wife. Yeah, like he was doing a long con of setting it up. Like, yeah. She's being harassed. So and... that's interesting. That's like a pattern of behavior. It seemed Michael Lissy had wanted to intimidate Margot, though not directly. He wanted her to think he had dangerous associates who would silence her if his deceptions were exposed. During a lull in the interview, Margot asked the detectives for the room number in which Catherine had been killed. Detective Davis responded with, room 305. Margot then pulled a folded piece of paper from her purse. It was a sale flyer for Valley Windsurfing and Scuba Shops from earlier in the month. Davis flipped the paper over and saw, handprinted on the back, were the numbers 305. I love that she kept it. Ooh, she knew. She knew he was bad. Margot explained that on July 7th, two days after the murder, she and Michael had a meeting scheduled, but not an exact time, to go over the accounting for the scuba shops. She called Michael at home to coordinate, and this is when he informed Margot of Catherine's death and that she had been strangled. Margot went to Michael's condo, and when she arrived, he took her into the bedroom, handed her the piece of paper, and told her to destroy it. And she had actually forgotten about it until two weeks later when she put on the same jeans from that day. She said, quote, it bothered me that it was just a little short number. On that day, according to Margot, Michael told her that Eugene police were coming to talk to him, and he was afraid they would search the condo. At first, he said it was the phone number of one of Catherine's drug connections. Then he said it was a hotel room number, but for one in Portland where you could, quote, go buy drugs or sex or whatever you want. Margot also said that prior to her and Michael's divorce, he had told her they were splitting up so he could marry Catherine for her money and to use her position at the First National Bank of Boston in Portland to get a business loan. Detectives mulled these clue nuggets over as they drove to Michael Lissy's condo, search warrant in hand. One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. 
two weeks with Red Circle, and we have advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. Detective Davis explained to Lissy that the warrant covered the condo as well as his van. He informed Lissy of his Miranda rights and explained that their many witnesses had given them enough to make him a suspect. They informed him that they had spoken with Margot and also of what they spoke. They told him they had him on tape with Molly. And when asked if he recognized the paper with 305 written on it, he nodded but stayed mute. It's so funny to me that these guys think that if I hire someone and I have my alibi... I'm good. I'll get away with it. When it's like you've been running your mouth to everyone who crosses your path. You've been vocal about trying to find someone to kill people. You've given people money. Like, you've still done every part, you know? And they're still like, oh, no, 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 it'll be fine. Because someone else is going to kill them. Well, in this case, we don't even know if it was someone else, right? (gasps) That's right. He could have just done it himself. Well, I was going off that alibi, I tell you what. Among many other items, they hoped to find Catherine's gold pendant necklace, the one she always wore the one that had not been found at the crime scene. They believed the necklace was the instrument that had left a distinct abrasion on Catherine's head and that the person who possessed it was most likely the killer. Lissy had told police previously that he had no idea what kind of life insurance policy Catherine had, if she had any at all. Detectives found this hard to believe as one investigator found a large envelope marked insurance policies while searching a shelf. Inside was a five-page note, handwritten and titled, Last Will of K.A. Martini. Mm which listed Michael as Catherine's sole beneficiary. When confronted with this, Michael claimed to have no knowledge of the document, though it had been stored in an easily accessible spot. Though her necklace was not found in the search, Catherine's address book was discovered in the kitchen drawer. It had been reported as missing from her effects at the crime scene by Michael. (gasps) Additionally, a small black box discovered in the house was found to contain Catherine's ashes, which had not been spread, as Michael had stated was the plan. Why lie about that? He cons people out of chicken this guy you caused this and now you want to keep it to remember it oh it's yeah like a, the ultimate trophy yeah and she can never get away from him mm-hmm. and his power Ugh, gross they also found an unregistered colt python in his van and scuba gear that was believed to be part of a valley scuba shop robbery from five months previous mm. a colt python just a big revolver oh okay police also obtained a financial statement of lissy's business as the search concluded, Michael said, quote, This is all like a bad dream. In June of 1984, a month before the murder, Michael Lissy paid for sex with Tina LaPlante, a 19-year-old sex worker and recent first-time mother. He told her he was looking for someone to kill and possibly rape a woman, and that he would pay the hitman $10,000 for the job. After her date with Lissy, Tina went to a place known locally as the Tweak House to do her recruiting. The Tweak House was frequently used as a drug restaurant by Michelle and a multitude of others looking for a low place to get high. While there, she propositioned the room. Does anyone know anybody who would commit a murder for $10,000? David Wilson, a frequent flyer at the Tweak House, said he would. Tina arranged a meeting between David Wilson and Michael Lissy. When they met, Lisa gave Wilson money to get a haircut and buy a suit so he would fit in with the hotel's usual clientele. He said the murder would happen out of town, that he, quote, wanted a rape, and that the murder had to be done by the evening of July 5th. A Lane County grand jury was assembled in September of 1984 to determine whether or not the evidence collected by Eugene police was of enough substance to charge Michael Lissy with murder. 
Detectives were worried their witness statements would not work at trial because they were mostly sex workers and drug addicts, not typically seen positively by a jury. Tina LaPlante was called to testify, and she failed to show. When she finally called with a story of a broken-down car, Detective Davis informed her that silence would buy her some serious jail time. The next week, Tina was served with another subpoena, and this time her lawyer struck an immunity deal in exchange for her testimony, as she was not present at the time of the murder. Though heavily involved in the plot to kill Catherine, Tina was able, and quite lucky, to skirt any charges. And though far more reluctant than Molly Griggs, Tina had also agreed to wear a body wire during the investigation. In recorded phone conversations with Tina, Michael made many admissions that made it clear he was the lead component of the conspiracy. He told Tina that the plan was for David Wilson to take the fall. Michael wanted him to confess to police, to say he was one of Catherine's drug connections, and that he had killed her suddenly in a drug-induced fugue. Wilson would serve time for manslaughter, three to five years, according to Lissy, and upon his release, he would pay Wilson $25,000. Tina was savvy and had proven her worth as a witness to police. At every one of his attempts to bypass her questions, she found a way to draw the conversations back around and glean more and more details of the crime and the role he played in it. On October 11, 1984, Tina and David met at a mutual friend's house and spoke about the crime. In that conversation, David Wilson gave away the entire store. She was afraid of David. Even though she had backup nearby, Tina knew he was a killer and that the wire she had fastened to her body could be all the reason he needed to kill again. On the night of the murder, David knocked on the door to room 305, explaining to Catherine that he was a friend of Michael's and had seen her in the hotel restaurant. He offered her a ride back to Portland, which Catherine naturally declined, and before leaving, David asked if he could first use her restroom. Catherine agreed, and once inside, David gagged and restrained her, laying Catherine on the bed. She asked if Michael had set her up. David said, Michael who, and instructed her to roll onto her stomach. He then crawled atop her and twisted the gag around her throat. According to David, Catherine laid still and was unconscious in seconds, though he held the twist until the body stopped twitching, then wiped the room of Prince and rode back to Portland. Tina asked David if it was hard to kill Catherine. He responded, quote, It's nothing. I can adjust to any situation. You know I can ignore it like it isn't there, if the money is right. The next day, October 12th, Michael was arrested at his parents' home in Depot Bay, which is two and a half hours southwest of Portland on the Oregon coast. He went quietly. His parents were devastated. They were also the likely targets for Michael's earliest hitman inquiries. Remember, he had wanted two older people killed on the coast? Oh, yeah. Um, Pretty awkward. What a douchebag. I bet he thought he was the, what's that? The beneficiary? Yeah, beneficiary of their. And you know, uh, just, just reading about, you know, a little bit about his parents, I think they really. Uh, loved him and were very accommodating of him, mm. and he used them a lot, I believe. I mean, it sounds like he used everybody yeah. in his life. To skirt being called before a grand jury and possibly charged in some way regarding the conspiracy, Starbuck, a 19-year-old sex worker familiar with Michael Lissy and his activities, spoke to police. She knew David Wilson was the killer and was in possession of Catherine's checkbook and credit cards. He was holding them as collateral in case Michael backed out of their deal. Starbuck also knew the room number in which Catherine had been killed, and she knew the year and make of the car in which David Wilson had been driven to Eugene. She knew this because a woman named Gretchen had told her, and Gretchen knew because she had been the driver. Gretchen Schumacher, 20 years old, worked the same streets frequented by Michael, though in a different capacity. She was a part-time, quote, pimp, and had set up multiple dates for him, the most recent being one week after Catherine's murder. 
David Wilson needed a ride, as his license was suspended, so their initial plan had been to rent a car, drive to Eugene anonymously, kill Catherine, return the car, and wait for everything to blow over. Unfortunately for them, that plan failed as they had no valid credit cards between them. As a result, Gretchen Schumacher and David Wilson, who were cousins, had no choice but to travel in an unreliable 1973 Oldsmobile, which was registered to Tina LaPlante. Police served warrants at David Wilson's residence, the house he shared with his mother in Beaverton, a suburb west of Portland. Detectives searched the premises, hoping to find Catherine's wallet, credit cards, and other identifying items Wilson had admitted to stashing his insurance. Once again, they wanted to find Catherine's gold necklace, which they believe had left that distinct abrasion on the back of her head. They found none of those items, but they did place David under arrest. The evidence collected and suspects arrested, the state was ready to prosecute the case, one the media dubbed Oregon's most fantastic contract killing ever. Under oath during pretrial testimony, Tina LaPlante admitted that on several occasions she had taken money from Michael Lissy and given it to David Wilson. She also testified that, according to Lissy's plan, David Wilson would take the fall for the murder and in exchange would receive $25,000. Lane County District Attorney Brian Barnes asked Tina if, previous to the murder, Lissy had given Tina Catherine's location. She responded that she had met him in downtown Portland and that he had given her a matchbook with Valley River Inn, Eugene, and the number 305 written on it. Mm. Tina then gave the matchbook to David, and having no choice since they couldn't get a rental, allowed Gretchen and David to use her 73 Oldsmobile as the crime car. The next time Tina saw David was later that same night, after he and Gretchen made the two-hour drive north, back to Portland. David described the killing on tape, admitting to Tina that he had attempted to rape Catherine, as he'd been instructed by Michael Lissy. Unable to accomplish his task, he rolled Catherine onto her stomach and strangled her to death. From Tina, a quote, He showed me his fingers, and they were all swollen and red. Unquote. Catherine's necklace was never recovered. Michael Lissy's trial began on Monday, January 21, 1985. Lane County Circuit Judge William Beckett presiding. Deputy District Attorney Brian Barnes gave the opening statement. Quote, when the police talked to him throughout the investigation, the defendant was lying through his teeth. The defendant, at that time, knew very well who had killed his wife because it was he who had instigated and solicited David Wilson to kill his wife. Evidence will show that Lissy was a guy who continually engaged others to do the dirty work, no matter what level of crime it was. He worked his way up the ladder of serious crimes to this latest one, the biggest fraud of all. Money was the motive. Life insurance benefits that just happened to pay out $190,000 nearly doubled the policy standard payout if Catherine happened to die while traveling for work, which she had. How convenient. According to the opening remarks of Ronald Sticka, one of Lissy's defense attorneys, Michael was, quote, a man caught up in circumstances. Perhaps he's guilty of many things, but he is not guilty of murder. Lissy, according to his defense team, was a liar who merely tried to impress the sex workers and downtown denizens he sought out for drugs and paid sex. He was playing a morbid game which spiraled away from his control. Sticka explained away Lissy's lies to police as a result of his client's confusion during a traumatic period and his mortal fear of David Wilson, whom he believed was Catherine's killer. So they're saying that this guy who's been doing cons and getting in trouble for years and years and years was like just in a bad place and scared of the guy? And that he was creating this fantasy that got out of his control. So he oh, was telling people that they took it all literally. Yeah. So for him, he's pretending it's some dark oh, fantasy please. about having his wife. Oh, guys, I was, he's pulling the. I was just joking. I was yeah. just kidding. Oh, gross. Beth, a former scuba shop employee of Michael's, testified that during a brief encounter at Catherine's funeral, 
The first thing Michael said to her was that Catherine didn't have any insurance, and as a result, he would have to sell the car, the condo, everything. This made Beth very suspicious. Quote, the minute he mentioned insurance, I knew I had a feeling. Mm -hmm. Under oath, Margot Stark, Michael's ex-wife and current scuba shop bookkeeper, described him as a man with a temper and a fondness for abusing her with a horsewhip. Quote, he could get physical, and I was afraid of being beaten by him, sodomized, raped. I was terrified of the man. She said that while she had first tried to protect Michael Lissy after the murder, she no longer loved him. Michael Lissy took the witness stand near the end of the trial. He repeated the defense Sticka had presented, that he had merely expressed dark fantasies to his associates, his guilt resulting from his failure to make clear that the game existed and that it was to remain one. When asked by D.A. Barnes if he would lie to get off the murder charge, Lissy replied that he was sure he probably would, but quickly changed his statement. Quote, I probably would have at one point. I wouldn't now. I've always, when I was cornered, used what I could. Should not have put him on the stand, huh? I mean... Kind of a mistake <laughs> But it's like, Oops. you know, now that I'm thinking about that, the there was no one else. Yeah. Michael Lissy's the only person who could give his own... Um, well, he's the On only, his behalf. Yeah, he's the only one with that version of the story. Yeah. No one else has that version. On the first day of deliberation, Thursday, February 7th, 1985, the jury announced they had reached a verdict after only five and a half hours behind Ooh, closed doors. That's a bad sign for him. Michael Lissy was found guilty of aggravated murder in Catherine Martini's death. He was sentenced to life in prison with a 30-year mandatory minimum sentence before parole eligibility would become available. A death sentence was off the table as the state of Oregon hadn't yet reinstated it, which it did that November, just nine months later. So he skated on that, I think. He would have been yeah. in trouble. Oh, big time. The day after Lissy's conviction and sentencing, David Wilson pleaded guilty to aggravated murder and was given a life sentence with a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. He has since been paroled. Gretchen Schumacher pleaded guilty to first-degree robbery and conspiracy to commit murder. She was sentenced to two concurrent 20-year sentences, but under parole board standards of the time, may have been released in as little as 40 months. In the aftermath of the trial, Catherine's father, Walter Martini, was quoted saying, He, Michael Lissy, was the mastermind. We'll never get over the loss of her, but at least we've seen justice prevail. She was one joyous person. After Catherine's murder, the network of business professional women, Portland, collected funds as a reward for assistance in finding the person responsible. $10,865 in all, though police determined that no witness or information source had merited any of the reward. It was instead donated to the Mary Lewis Academy in New York City, Catherine Martini's high school alma mater. After her involvement in the case, Molly Griggs said she ceased being a sex worker and re-enrolled in school. When asked by District Attorney Brian Barnes if she wanted the reward money being offered, she refused, saying she had no need for blood money. Quote, Catherine was successful in doing something decent, and that's what I want to do. It's decent and human. Molly was eventually paid $750 by the Eugene Police Department for her assistance. But she had, didn't she reach out initially after she heard about the murder? She was the first one. She was the one that, that brought all of it to attention. And they still weren't like, hey, you could use this $10,000. Well, she didn't want it. I mean, good for her, but also like, you know, she still did the right thing and deserved that. Michael Lissy, now residing in the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, created quite a stir when he claimed to have information regarding an ongoing murder investigation, which he had heard from another inmate. His goal was to exchange this information for a reduction of his prison term, and Dale Penn, the district attorney involved in the deal, nearly agreed to it. 
That was until Detective Davis and Poppy, as well as District Attorney Barnes, was able to convince him that Lissy was at the very least unreliable and would absolutely lie at any time for any benefit. Penn turned the deal down and went on to win the case without Lissy's help. But as a result, Michael Lissy was labeled as a snitch and required a transfer out of the Oregon prison system. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Did they disclose where he Mm-mm. went to? No. I've run into a few cases where you just don't know where you they went. You just can't find it, yeah. Yep. He was released on parole early in April of 2012, and not shockingly, it turns out he never graduated from or even attended Harvard. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> he seemed so smart. <laughs> Years before he was paroled, though, in December of 1986, he was featured in a holiday-themed Associated Press article. Quote, Santa Claus caught the flu this year at the penitentiary. Much to Michael Lissy's joy, he was called in to substitute. <laughs> oh, boy. It's an emotional high that is hard to explain, Lissy said. One kid had wanted a G.I. Joe doll for two years. We gave it to him, and tears just came pouring down his face. Even old Santa had tears coming out. Lissy, who was serving a life sentence for murder said Christmas was an unemotional time for him on the outside. But now, as Santa Claus in prison, he is learning to believe in Christmas. He sits in the visiting room, holding children of inmates and listening to their Christmas wishes. Another inmate snaps photos of the scene for $1.50. We've all taken a lot out of the community, and it's our chance to put something back, Lissy said. End quote. Unfortunately, we can't believe a word I out of his mouth. I was just going to say, that'd be so heartwarming if we could believe that. Yeah. But, like, again, yeah, we is, know. is it just a, a photo op to be mm-hmm. like, see, you can let me out? If you or anyone you know is experiencing abuse, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or go to thehotline.org. Here in Portland, the Cupcake Girls provides confidential support to those involved in the sex industry, as well as trauma-informed outreach, advocacy, holistic resources, and referral services to provide prevention and aftercare to those affected by sex trafficking. They have resource centers in both Portland and Las Vegas. And for more information and to donate, please go to thecupcakegirls.org or at cupcakegirls.org. You know, besides the loss of life, obviously that's the worst part of it. The amount of people that could have stopped it. And you hear these stories all that, you know, the whole thing plays like a Coen Brothers movie. All for a little bit of money. All these people, so many opportunities to stop it. We should have known he didn't go to an Ivy League school with how many people were involved in this. Right? And just like nobody stopped. No one stepped up to be like, you know, I'm going to call and... and these people were in, you know, most of them were kind of in a rock and a hard place oh, kind yeah. of life situation. Probably like didn't feel comfortable reaching out to police. Or addicted to drugs yeah, and doing anything for, for money. money. And you hear about it all the time. At any financial level of life, you hear about these things where like in different circles because of whatever, no one wants to intervene or, or stop it. Or they thought he was full of shit. Right. Like, oh, he's not going to follow through on all these. He's just pissed and ranting. Yeah. And yeah. and they probably didn't give a shit because they're just like they want to have the transaction, they want the money, they yeah. want the drugs and move on with or their whatever, life. and move on. Yeah, so yeah, because once those drugs hit their system, they're not going to remember it. I well, and also once you're in that world, it's like when life starts losing value, you're capable of walking into a room being like, "Hey, who wants to take out a hit for ten grand?" That's so sad. I, I really imagine that people under the influence of drugs or whatever influence talk about things like that 
all the time. Yeah. It's constant. So it probably just sounds like noise. Sounded like noise at the time. That's blah, why, blah, blah. Why I yeah. think nobody took it real seriously. Yeah. yeah. And this guy, how interesting that he's, you know, these parents are saying like we had a happy, healthy life or whatever. And you didn't take that for what it is. But what is it in this guy that he has to from from the get go, from the second he can. Yeah, something happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he just like, like needs to take and needs to consume yeah. at all times. Yeah, he's just narcissist. He, and, yeah. he puts himself first in yeah. all scenarios. And I didn't put it in the case at all because it's not, not really relevant. But he was like a tall guy and a, and a large man too. Oh, so I think yeah. it, it stretched from drugs to money to food to sex to everything. I've he was seen an his I've seen I, his yeah. picture, and when you said the Santa Claus thing, I'm like, oh, I can see that for him. Oh, yeah. being older and gray hair, he had a big beard and he had a big belly. Yeah, and so it fits. But was there ever anything that he said? Well. Not maybe not that he said, or that was found to be like this urgent thing. Like I know he was in debt, but no, I, I mean, don't know. Just that panic of for ten thousand dollars. There was that one little detail about the um, him wanting to buy a boat to smuggle drugs, mm. and I didn't see anything like well, that. That's I thought another, maybe there'd be a connection. That's with another that money. means to money, though. Yeah, that's yeah. Just, I can make more money if I'm smuggling. But I was thinking maybe he would use the life insurance maybe to fund that or something. Like yeah, that. Right. he was just. I think he was trying to go to the next level. Right. Yeah, to be right. like big a time. He wants to be yeah. a kingpin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so sad too. Like they were together less than a year, right? From and like he married the, her yeah. after a month. Was it a month after his uh, divorce? It was a soon. few months, I think, yeah. So soon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He got divorced, and then they got me. Yeah. So yeah, they had been together that's... for a couple months, but then he, yeah. Right. They were probably separated mm-hmm. a while, but still. He is like the ultimate predator of just like, I'm going to just take you for whatever you can offer me, and that's it. That's all you mean to me. People, there's like no emotional connection. They're yeah. transaction to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that was something point. that I noticed when reading is just the coldness. Mm-hmm. There's never a never a moment where it seems like he cared about anything. I'm interested if, yeah. if like what his psychology is. Uh-huh. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. He are sounds you a like a sociopath. Narcissist. Ni- narcissist. Yeah, yeah. Right there. Oh, fully. His, I mean, his ego. <laughs> Borderline personality. Thinking that he could spread that all over town and oh, that yeah. no one would say anything because he was in control of the, of the game or whatever. Or that he'd be so obvious of like. That it would be his wife and that it would be. And I think, <clears throat> I believe that's why he wanted the strangulation and the rape. Because then it would be. Not him. Yeah, because a hit is like, oh, they got shot in their car or someone came to their house or that kind of thing. Or, yeah, or, stabbed, like, yeah. or maybe he saw it like he wouldn't be suspected of raping his own wife. Right. Yes. And who would who would know her hotel room? Who could find her just to get to a hotel room out of town? It's like, just so sad all the effort he put in yeah. for that. When it's so easy to just not be with someone. Also, if you have that much uh, tenacity and willingness to work hard, because this was a work lot of hard work. Legitimately. Work hard legitimately. Work hard. Make your business better and you'll get $10,000 stealing sooner. from your own business. Yeah. Maybe it'll be profitable. <laughs> yeah, it was the 80s, too. Scuba was hot. Yeah. How could you not make that work? Yeah. You got cocaine. You got scuba. Yeah. Ugh. I'm glad he's found some sort of peace if it's legitimate with the whole Santa thing but it's really hard to believe it being legitimate I mean pathological liar and a real piece of shit Mm -hmm. oh I left my water away whoops I left my water away. <laughs> I didn't know if anyone would catch that. <laughs> oh, dearest me, I left my you water fucker. away. Oh, my God. I thought y- y'all talking over me, we'd miss it. Nah, <laughs> we don't miss shit like that. Who are you fooling? <laughs> well, I talk like a madrigal. 
A what? A, a magical, like a magical singer. You know, eh. from medieval times. No. Oh. Would you like me to curl up at your feet like Rosie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, there we go. Grandpa, tell me a story. <laughs> Want me to climb on your lap? He's going to sit on my lap. Curl actually. your beard within our fingers. <laughs> Ma'am, please stop hitting on him. What? Santa's coming to town. <laughs> and in his pants. <laughs> Gross. That's not Chisel no, bells, chisel ah! bells. <laughs> I'm creaming on this white Christmas. That's not reindeer poop. That's Santa's jizz. Ew, poop. You why know, is it brown? Because horses poop when they're trotting. And why wouldn't reindeers poop when they're in the sky? Why is his jizz brown <laughs> is the question. He's been alive a long time. <laughs> Them pipes is dirty. There's no about it. There's no about it at it. <laughs> There's no about it at it. I love that song. <laughs> and he replied that she was staying there. <laughs> Some musk in the air. Ew. <laughs> oh, fuck you. I mean, it's... All the boys in the neighborhood will be knocking on the door if I take off these pants. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of musk you got going on under there? Jesus. It's called Magic Musk by Ariana Grande. Davis also asked. (laughs) (laughs) I can stop at the Blizzard place. What's it called? Say its name. It is Dairy Queen, and you respect royalty here. Can I just get a scoop of vanilla ice cream for my float I brought? In my hand is fine. (laughs) I brought a Ziploc. Throw it in. (laughs) According to a letter, (laughs) 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 quote, 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 (laughs) quote. Am I saying quote? What? Is that a word? (laughs) Care Bear Stare. <laughs> what's a what's a group of bears called? Bears, like a flock, like a herd, like a pack. The o- they're called a oh shit. I an better run. Bears. <laughs> That's oh. a good question. A pod. They're, they're not us. in packs though. They just travel in family. It's oh. Just the mom and the cubs. But there's oh. got to be a word. Dad doesn't even stick around. Wow. Oh. Figures. Who at that point had been Lane count. <sighs> Betsy. <laughs> Previous. <clears throat> Previous. <laughs> The plan was for Molly and he to meet up so he could make some incriminating... Fuck. Are you just reading my reviews over there? Oh, no, I'm on uh, Bend I Hop and Everybody Hates oh, okay. It. It's pretty... Yeah, it's bad. There's th- one... Oh, it's went out of business, I think. There's one... Um, a couple minutes later, our waitress brought our meals. We started eating because we were hungry. We noticed two things immediately. Cold food and wrong toast for hubby. And he said he wasn't eating it. He hates wheat toast. <laughs> <laughs> I, and then she went into graphic detail about I how understand. much she hates the, For me, the, the only toast is sourdough toast. Margaret reporter. Been there. It's half cold, half. Python. Could have been, they're ball pythons. Oh it's not half ball. Snake gun. Write that down. That's a terrifying <laughs> motion picture. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. 
Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. It's that time of year again, and as excited as we all are to finally be with our families, there's always a need for two things. Mistletoe and Santa's lap? I was thinking more gifts and games. Oh. Gifts for your friends and family, games to pass the time, and bond. Well, in that case, I have just the thing to cover both of those needs. A new game that we've loved playing, Psycho Killer. Oh, heck yes. Psycho Killer is so fun, as our Patreon listeners can attest to since they got to listen to us play it. While using themes from all of our favorite slasher flicks, Psycho Killer is a fast-paced card game for two to six players. It's easy to learn, easy to play, and super fun to build strategies. With cards that have weapons, predicaments, locations, and of course, Psycho Killers, use your skills, strategy, and cards to survive, which may also include stabbing your friends in the back. Not literally, of course. More importantly, the game comes in the cutest VHS-inspired packaging. It sure does. So do all of the cassette tape-inspired expansion packs, which include a drinking version, zombies, and extra weapons. Don't let your family make you feel psycho. Have a killer time while playing Psycho Killer from EscapeTabletopGames.com. For an extra bit of fun, I love using the QR code on the box, which takes you to their curated Spotify playlist. So visit EscapeTabletopGames.com to get your own copy of Psycho Killer and use the code RAIN15 at checkout for 15% off. For more gaming fun, you can follow them on Instagram and TikTok at psychokiller.cardgame. Psycho Killer! Psycho Killer.